want to thank those guys for playing for us today, Mary, Seth, and Chris. Um, you guys are my spring break heroes over here. You guys are awesome. Uh, Seth used to actually intern with us a couple years ago. You may not recognize because he has a huge beard now, um, but he used to intern back in the day with us, and uh, so glad to have them in here. So are you guys like just the ones that don't have any plans for spring break? Is that who you people are now? Is that what the deal is? Are you guys staying? So you're leaving tomorrow, so everyone else, you're staying here this week? Is that the plan? Yeah. Um, well, my family, I'm not trying to make you jealous, but uh, my family, we're actually going to go to, um, on Tuesday, we're actually going to Impact Camp just to go have fun at Impact Camp for like till Friday. So it'll be fun. So we're going to be there from, um, we get, actually get to enjoy just that area and stuff. So since normally I'm there working, we're going to go and have fun there. Um, so it should be fun. So, uh, of course, this, I want you guys to be praying for our high schoolers that are at Mission G and junior high. There's over 100 people between high school and junior high are at Mission G right now in Galveston. So be praying for them as they're doing ministry there until Wednesday. And then next weekend, we have a group of students from in here that will be going to Pine Cove to serve. So I love putting you guys in position to go serve and uh, and there's no better way to build community than to serve together. And so I, I love when our students do that. Um, so I knew that most would be out of town this week. So I thought it would be a great week to talk about sin. So we're going to talk about the problem of sin today. You guys excited? You can tell your friends that are not here, like we heard a, a hopefully a great sermon on sin. You should go listen to it on the podcast, maybe later. Um, but we're, doing, we're continuing this series, uh, Questions and Reasons. In the first part of the series, we've been discussing questions that keep people from faith. We've covered those. And then the second part of the series is really trying to build up reasons for faith. And in the questions part, we tried to show you how faith, there is still some faith behind a lot of the questions people ask that keep them from faith. So we showed you how there are some faith premises in play. When people raise questions about the Christian faith, there, there are still some faith premises that they're assuming, and we're trying, we try to show you what those are in the first part of this series. Now, um, now we're trying to show you guys the reasons for faith, why someone should believe. Uh, a few years ago, actually many years ago now, um, I used to work at a different church in the, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and I was an intern there. And there was this girl that came for the summer, and she was from Germany, and she was just an exchange student and came for the summer to visit. And she was staying with a family in our church. And she, had, she was not a Christian. She was an agnostic. She did not know what she believed. She just did not believe in Christianity. And she was the kind of, the kind of student that at every event would, like, pull off with a leader and just pepper that person with questions about the faith. because She was so curious about it. And wanted to discuss why we believe what we believe, and, and she would share what she believed. She was very open to discussion and dialogue. And one night, we're at the uh, youth pastor's house, and he had just put in a pool at his house. And we had this big pool party at his house, and he was a really um, a great mentor of mine. And so I'm standing there talking with him and this girl, and she's asking lots of questions about faith once again at this party. And she says to Joe, my mentor, she says, I just can't believe there's just only one true religion. 
And Joe just very simply said to her, he says, well, you know, I understand where you're coming from, but if you really think about it, nothing else handles the problem of sin. There's no other religion that handles the problem of sin or deals with the problem of sin. And I think he was right. And so today we're talking about the problem of sin. Apart from Christianity, we have no explanation for and no solution to the problem of sin. Now, everyone, I think, sees something wrong with the world. We just give it different names. If you ask people on the street, they're going to say, yeah, of course I see things, see things that are wrong with the world. But they may not call it sin. They may call it something else. Um, they may call it just its society or its, its culture. Or If you notice when you talk to people that may not be a Christian, but they still acknowledge there's a problem out there in the world somewhere, they will describe it as like social forces or cultural forces or just the the collective society as a whole just causes problems and they really can't pin it down as to what it really is i saw this in college um i was not when i was an undergrad i was not a ministry major i went to a secular university in arlington and i just went to school to get a degree in something and I was a journalism major, and I had a sociology minor, was what, was, what I was, what I, was what I got as a minor. And I was just interested in those things. And I was interested in understanding people groups and how, why they operate the way they operate. And in most of my, my upper-level sociology classes, what you heard this theme consistently throughout those courses, and you will hear it in your schools and when you go off to college as well, that it's not, you'll, you'll hear this idea that individuals are basically good, Yet, they'll talk about society, how society will make people bad. And things that happen to them will make them bad. And I'm like, wait a second, hang on. The math's not adding up. If individually we are basically good, then how is it that collectively we create evil? How does that happen? And so it's like they never want to really call it sin or... or or put it on one person's shoulders, but it, it makes no sense as to how we can be individually basically good, but collectively, as a culture and a society, we somehow create what we would call evil, what they might call just brokenness or whatever they want to call it. And it, it doesn't add up. And so I would say that we have to acknowledge the reality that all of us, we are not basically good in ourselves. We are... Um, sinners. We, um, sin is our identity from birth. And we, we sin because we are sinners from birth, right? And this is our identity from the time we were born. So you'll, you'll hear those kinds of thoughts when you get to, if you're not already hearing those kinds of things. But if we're going to understand the problem of sin, I think we have to start, go back to where it started. So turn to Genesis chapter 3. We'll start in verse 1 of Genesis 3. We'll be in Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7 today. And this might be a familiar story to you, but I want to hopefully have you see some things you've not seen before in this passage. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, 
we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So I know that you know this story fairly well, but I want to point out some stuff you may not have seen before. So, so what does Satan do first? He asks her a question. And he says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, is the question accurate? I'm wanting a response on this. Is the question accurate? Satan says to her, did God say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God really say that? Did God say that to them? No, he did not. So right away, that's the first flag. What God really said, Eve tells us in verse 3, and she's right until the very end. Watch what she says. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Up to that point, she's accurate. She's correct. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, did God say, neither shall you touch it? No, he did not say that. There's nothing in there about that. If you go back in in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, it says, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Nothing about touching the tree whatsoever. So watch this. Satan exaggerates his question, and then Eve exaggerates her response. This is really, really important. Satan exaggerates the question, and then Eve exaggerates her response. And here's the point I want you to see. Satan wants us to doubt God's goodness. Here's what he's doing. Even his question, as he sets it up, he's trying to create doubt in her mind. I mean, come on, did God really say you can't eat of any tree? And that's not what God said. And she responds, but you can see how she gets tripped up. She even exaggerates the response in what she says. So Satan wants us to doubt God's goodness, and this is always what he wants. Is it any wonder behind many of the questions we've covered in this series that behind those questions, there is another question that you're asking, and it's, is God really good? And for many people at your age especially, if they determine that I can't answer these questions, therefore God must not be good, therefore I cannot follow him, I cannot worship him. And so you see how it is the exact same thing today. As Satan puts his question, he exaggerates the question, and she exaggerates her response, causing her to question God's goodness. The next point, Satan's goal is not for you to believe him, but for you to doubt God. Satan is not just standing there and and trying to get her, Eve, to put her faith in Satan and believe in him and put her... That's not what it's about with Satan. Satan doesn't really care if you even think he even exists. All he wants you to do is he wants you to doubt God. And everything that he's going to do to tempt even this situation and Adam is to get them to doubt God, who he is, his goodness, all of the above. Look down at verse um, 
Look down at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So once again, you see Satan, he, he twists God's words, and he says they will not die. Now clearly God said that they would die. And then he tells her, he says, God is hiding something from you. The, the reason why God doesn't want you eating of this tree is because he knows that you'll be like him. If, and God doesn't want you being like him, so he's, he's holding something from you. The liar of all liars wants us to believe that God is a liar. That's his goal. His goal is to think, make you think that God is a liar. Make Eve and Adam think that God is a liar. Satan wants us to believe God is keeping something good from us. This is at the heart of all temptation. At the heart of all temptation is this idea. He wants you to believe God's keeping something good from you. He's holding out on you. I want you to watch this because Satan was partly correct. When Satan said, when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open and you'll be like God. When he says that, he is partly correct because they will know good and evil. When they've, when they've committed the first sin, then they will know good and evil after that, of course. But they're not going to become like God in the way that they think they are. So again, Satan's partly correct, but he also is, is trying to deceive them. Now maybe you've, you've been like me where you've often wondered, like, what was the big draw? Like, I mean, fruit? Really? Like, that's what did it? That's what cast all of humanity into sin was fruit? Like, I can understand other things, but, I mean, that's, that's what did it? And it's a great, it's a fair question. But I want you to watch, look beneath the statements here, because we do see it here in the passage. He says, you will be like God. So it wasn't just that they were looking at the fruit going, yeah, that looks like some really good fruit. It's, this is a matter of what the fruit is promising to them. And Satan says, you will be like God if you partake in the one thing that God says not to partake in. There is a lot of deeper stuff going on here, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Look down at verse uh, 6. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves one cloth. I want you to see, look at three things that it says about the tree. It says it is good for food, it's a delight to the eyes, and it would make them wise. That's what Satan says to her. Now, the first two I understand. You can look at and see like how that one thing, she looks at it, and she, if she's hungry, you can see how it makes sense that she would desire it. She's hungry. She wants food. Then it says it's a delight to the eyes. Now, if you can relate to this, I think you can. Usually anything your parents tell you not to touch 
has this allure factor, right? Whenever you have been told something, it could be like a paperclip, something so boring. But if your mom and dad said, don't touch the paperclip, you'd be like, ooh, paperclip, you know? Like, it could be the most boring thing ever, but you still want to go find out why. And there's something alluring about the forbidden. And so she sees it. We're not sure if it's because maybe this fruit is, like, extra beautiful. We don't really know. But there's something alluring about the forbidden. So there's this desire, delight to the eyes. And so I want you to see some things um, about this in the text here. We see some things here about sin. I think it's a good pattern for us to look at. Sin always meets a practical need. Sin always meets a practical need. She looks at the tree. It's good for food, and she's hungry. And you can relate that to anything today. I mean, so, so you're a sophomore, a junior. You're getting towards the end of high school. You've not really ever had a boyfriend, girlfriend, and you're starting to feel lonelier, starting to feel like, I just feel like I should have had the experience by now. And so you start to compromise based on faith. I'm a Christian. He or she, marginal at best. Maybe they're not even a believer at all. But you know what? I'm, I'm just really lonely. Listen, sin always meets a practical need. It always does. I think about the... I've told you recently how over the course of the last year, I've had to say no to several people through this church that want to get, they want to get married here. They want to have a pastor on the staff do the wedding. And when I sit and ask them the hard questions, like, okay, I ask you, I ask you some, I ask you some awkward questions here at our first couple of meetings. Um, are you involved um, sexually before marriage? And are you living together? Those kinds of questions. And it's always awkward. But we do the hard work of shepherding and discipleship. And three times in the last year, they've looked at me and said, yeah, we're not going to do that. And they walk out of my office, and I say, I'm really sorry. I, I, I'm asking for repentance. I'm asking them for, to, to turn from their sin. But they look at me and just say, we're not doing that. Sorry. We'll go somewhere else. And it's heartbreaking. And usually you'll get responses like this. Yeah, we just... We just moved in together. Like, we just signed a lease. Like, we, if we do what you're asking, it's going to cost us a lot of money. Like, it's easier for us to just stay put. Like, we understand. You're a pastor. You're supposed to say things like that. We understand. But, I mean, it's not practical to do what you're asking us to do. And the smart, sort of smart aleck person in me just wants to say, yeah, sin is always more convenient. It is. I can never think of a scenario where sin is less, is like not the most convenient thing, right? It always is the most convenient thing. It's always meeting a practical need. And so for here, in this story, it meets a practical need for her. It's good for food. Next, it's a delight to the eyes. Sin always promises more than it can deliver. She's expecting this tree and its fruit to make her wise. You know, she's been lied to. She's believing lies that Satan has has put before her. 
And I think whenever you and I chase sin, we are always looking for more than the thing itself. So whenever it seems foolish that she's looking at a piece of fruit and think it's going to make her wise, yet this is what Satan has told her it will do for her. And she thinks it will make her wise. It's, it's promising more than it can deliver. And I think we do the exact same thing. We do the exact same thing with, with really foolish things. You really think that person is going to be your ultimate fulfillment in life? And yet we, we can even know that it's false and yet still chase it because we've been lied to and we're believing lies. Sin always leads to separation from God and others. And you know the story, how it goes, how as soon as they commit this sin against God, that God now um, allows sin to separate them from him. And I think most of us understand, I mean, you guys learn this as you deal with impact stuff. You, you, you communicate really well how sin separates us from God. And most of our impact stories focus on that reality, that sin separates us from God. But we rarely talk about how it separates us from each other. And that's a huge aspect of, of sin as well. I mean, think about your relationships in here. Or maybe a former relationship, friendship in here. If there are any broken relationships in your life, it's usually because of some sin, either real or perceived. And that's what causes it, that kind of brokenness, broken relationship. I know most of us, we see sin as a violation of rules, but I want you to see how it's so much more than just a violation of rules. This next person says this, the essence of sin is not the violation of laws, but a wrecked relationship with God, one another, and the whole created order. We can't just think about sin as just a violation of a list of laws. We must think of it as a wrecked relationship with God, with other people, and even the whole created order. I know whenever we talk about sin, we've got to show how it affects us and God, us and others, and the entire created order that God has made. If you read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, any Old Testament fans out there, you just love reading the Old Testament. All one of you, Robert, I see that hand, yeah. Okay, three, two more hands. Um, the rest of you are just like, I'm too tired to raise my hand. I got up early this morning. Um, but I'm going through the Old Testament right now in my own personal reading. And man, the book of Ezekiel has some vivid imagery of adultery. Like what, what God, how God describes what the nation of Israel has done to him. I mean, vivid imagery of adultery. God uses this image of adultery over and over and over again when he describes the nation turning to idols. He says to them, it is like you, Israel, have turned on your spouse and had sex with someone else. That's what it's like. And it's this very powerful picture and image. And I think God's chosen that image very carefully because he's trying to show how anytime you and I turn away from God and turn towards sin, it is really an act of adultery. It's that powerful and that raw and that intense. That's what God thinks about it. Yeah, we just think of sin as just like, eh, eh, no big deal. 
And yet God refers to it as adultery. Like you and I, we understand adultery. Like we get it. We know how intense that is. And so for God to use that as the image, the, the primary image through the whole, most of the Old Testament about what idolatry and sin is, it, it communicates this whole other thing. Like if I, were to, if I were to cheat on my wife, most would not look at me and say, yeah, you, which, which commandment was that again? Like, yeah, you, you did break that, whatever number that was, that rule, adultery. Now they would say, man, you wrecked this relationship. You violated this relationship, not just a law. And so sin is always a violation of relationship, never just a violation of laws. So what is sin exactly? Sin is seeking an identity apart from God. I'm not saying that you should try to work all this stuff into your impact stuff. You know, children, sin is like adultery. You know, I'm not saying you should do that at your impact clubs this year. Or even try to incorporate this stuff into that. But I'm trying to help you understand what's really happening when you, you and I seek after sin. Sin is seeking an identity apart from God. And I think we see it in, a, in the story of Adam and Eve. They weren't just after a piece of fruit. They wanted to be like God. And so there was some deep soul stuff going on um, as they sought their identity apart from God. Sin is always trying to find happiness, significance, meaning apart from God. I mentioned before how everyone sees something wrong with the world. But the commonalities end there because we don't agree on the diagnosis or the solution. So how do, our, how do people in our world today try to solve the sin problem? I mean, of course, they don't call it sin because that would damage everyone's self-esteem. But they call it other things. So what is our culture's response to brokenness? Well, it's education, right? Most of the time when you go into your school, um, if there are, maybe they've had some, some bullying problems or racism or sexual assault, I mean, whatever's been happening in the schools, they will have an education campaign. We're going to fix it. We're going to put up posters. We're going to bring in a speaker. We're going to try to have these positive communication about these issues. Because if, if, if kids just knew the information, if we can just educate them, then we'll fix it. And that might work for some people. That might in- improve some things for some students. Because they're, they're starting with the premise that man is basically good, and if we have right information, then we'll make the right decision. Now, education might change some behavior, but it never changes the heart. It never changes the inside. You and I live in a world where no one wants to talk about sin because that just sounds judgmental, makes everyone feel guilty. It's not popular. I mean, who wants to feel guilty? So most of the time, whenever we share the gospel, we like to say things like, okay, there's bad news and there's good news. Bad news is you're a sinner. Good news is Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He resurrected. He offers you new life. Put your faith and trust in him. Believe in him. Have eternal life. 
And so we present the gospel as just like bad news, then there's good news. And that's, that's accurate to some extent. But I want you to see this morning how the fact that we're, we can call sin, sin, and that, that we're sinners, that's part of the good news as well, right? Because understanding you're a sinner is still part of the good news, and here's why. Because if we don't get the diagnosis right, we'll never offer the right solution. If we don't get the diagnosis right, we're going to offer the wrong solution. So it's hard news, it's difficult news, but it's all part of the good news that we're a sinner separated from God because there is a solution. If you get the wrong diagnosis, you're going to get the wrong solution. I also want you to see this morning how all sin is not just adultery, but all sin is idolatry. We have this tendency to think that there's like, there's sins, and then like up here is idolatry. And most of my sins are down, down here in this other category. And then, yeah, occasionally I'll delve into idolatry, but very rarely do I go there. And, and we tend to see sin in those categories, and yet all sin is trying to find an identity apart from God, and all sin is idolatry. And if all sin is idolatry, then we've got to identify our idols. So at your uh, tables, you've got some of those, uh, those sheets I passed out that I want every person to take home with them. You can look at them later on. But these are some statements that help you identify certain idols in your life that I find very convicting. I'm going to cover a few of these right now and discuss a few of them at the, right here on the stage. But it starts like this. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if I am loved and respected by fill in the blank. This is approval idolatry. My life only has meaning. I only have worth. If I am loved and respected by this person, right? That's approval idolatry. The next one, if I am being recognized for my accomplishments and I am excelling in school or athletics, that's achievement idolatry. Man, that's the one. There's several that really hit me personally. That's the one right now that I look at and say, out of the one I'm going to list for you, that's one of the ones that really hits me. When I was in high school, I went to a small high school, and I played soccer, and I was decent, I guess, for my school, but growing up in that school, I saw how we didn't have football. We had soccer was the fall sport. This is on the East Coast, and, and, I, and I saw how over the years of me being younger in that school, that if you were successful in sports, like your name got broadcast on the loudspeaker at school, congratulations to this person scoring this many goals in this game, or this many points in basketball, and I was just determined, like, I'm going to be one of those kind of people. I'm going to be one of those guys. So got into high school and just went after it and worked really, really hard and tried my best at certain sports, and soccer was kind of like my thing in high school. And my identity was wrapped up in it. What drove me to work so hard at it was this achievement idolatry. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't work hard at stuff, but the motive really, really matters. And I think for me, my motives were very much about me and glorifying me. And it was an achievement idolatry. The next, I am following my religion's moral codes, and I am accomplished in its activities. 
This is religion idolatry. You might be asking the question, well, how in the world? Religion What is that? These are good things, right? They are, but again, motive matters. Motive matters a lot when it comes to these kinds of things. The next one. This one person is in my life and happy to be there and or happy with me. Individual person idolatry. Does your life revolve around a particular individual in how you feel about your life? The next one. A particular social group lets me in. Inner ring idolatry. Like you will only have meaning, only have worth if they will let you into their circle of people. And the last one I wrote on here is if I have a particular kind of look or body image, and that is image idolatry. And that's nothing to do with our culture today at all. So destroying your idols and turning to Christ, I want you to see this long quote. Quoting C.S. Lewis is really difficult because his thoughts are so like, let's read it four times to to really get it. But um, I have this long quote. I'm going to kind of walk through it slowly. Destroying your idols and turning to Christ is both hard and easy at the same time. And here's why he says this. Watch this quote. The almost impossibly hard thing is to hand over your whole self to Christ. But it is far easier than what we are all trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do is remain what we call ourselves. Our personal happiness centered on money or pleasure or ambition and hoping. And hoping, despite this, to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. I'm going to stop right there. What he's saying is instead of handing our whole self over to Christ, most of us try this when we kind of get religious We come to the church, we come into a place like this, and we attempt to remain what we call ourselves, right? And who we think we're supposed to be, who we are in ourselves. And we try to keep our happiness centered on various things that we've chosen, like he says, money, pleasure, ambition. And then while trying to remain ourselves, we still also try to adopt some, like, good things, like honesty you know, being chaste, being humble, and just kind of slap those things onto our life. And that's how most of us attempt the Christian faith. And he goes on to say, and that is exactly what Christ warned us you cannot do. If you remember the picture Christ used of the Pharisees, he says you are whitewashed tombs. You're dead and decaying on the inside, but you've slapped some whitewash on the outside. And that's not what the Christian faith is. He says, if I am a grass field, all the cutting will keep the grass less, but won't produce wheat. If I want wheat, I must be plowed up and re-sown. And so I think you understand the image he's getting at here. So the solution is not what the world offers. The solution to sin is not what the world offers. You know, be better just get better, just get some little bit of Jesus in your life. But we've got to be completely plowed up and re-sown. And that's what Jesus offers to us. That's what he offers to us. I hear many young Christians 
saying things like, I've got to get my life together, or I need to turn over a new leaf. That is not the essence of the Christian faith. The essence of the Christian faith is that you get plowed up and completely resown. We don't get to remain ourselves. That's not part of what Christ is calling us to do. It's not just about trying harder. That becomes ultimately a dead end. Listen to these last words, last quote. Everybody has to live for something. Whatever that something is becomes Lord of your life, whether you think of it that way or not. Jesus is the only Lord who, if you receive him, will fulfill you completely, and if you fail him, will forgive you eternally. You got some questions at your tables? Go ahead and discuss those questions for a few minutes.